I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What is fascinating to you about ketamine? What's fascinating for me about ketamine? I mean, ketamine is a beautiful drug for many reasons, clinically, and, and it's... Uh, very dose dependent, right? There's really, really profound work that can happen in low dose ketamine experiences where a person is, is still lucid, is still conversational, but significantly disarmored and, and with much wider access to exile parts. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club show. My guest today is Lauren Taus, and we talk about why ketamine is fascinating. You heard it right topic. Lauren has become quite a name in the psychedelic world. She's based in Los Angeles and is a licensed psychotherapist practicing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy called CAP in Los Angeles. She integrates modern science and ancient wisdom to support personal transformation and much-needed systemic change. She started Embodied Life as a private psychotherapy practice and it blossomed into a group practice That is also a platform for education through in-person experiential trainings and retreats. Lauren sits also on the advisory board of Journey Clinical, an amazing psychedelic company based in New York City, which I like a lot. To me, Lauren is one of the most interesting and also important people in the new psychedelic space. Why? Because her social media language is really speaking to me since she has a great way to really get into the important questions around psychedelics. Biggest question, how does change actually look like after a psychedelic trip on a daily basis? We talk about why do we all need TO, which means time out in Californian speak, and how psychedelics can support us with that. We address Lauren's way from anorexia to healing and her way through the 12-step program. We talk about her acid trip with her dad, a doctor who now works with Lauren in her practice, and how it works if your family is starting to look into psychedelics too and how there could be a psychedelic family therapy one day, meaning in the next couple of months. And of course, we talk about how psychedelic journeys can bring fun to our lives. Big topic too. Something I feel we should also talk about more and often. And with Lauren, this is possible. Please enjoy the show and the great Lauren Taus. Okay, so finally, after a couple of <laughs> back and forth, um, I'm really excited to have Lauren Taus on the show, who is my 
absolute social media um, idol, <laughs> I have to say. Besides, you're also a great therapist, um, author, and teacher. And more about this soon. But but the first question would be really, I mean, I'm really fascinated by your by your social media output, which, as we know, is not that easy to really do very well or very, you know, kind of inspired in the, so in the psychedelic space. So you could, you know, it, it's not like super easy to come up with your own ideas and you always post yourself like a picture of you when you meditate or when you journal, which I find I'm always like, oh shit, she, she can pull this off. Like <laughs> I cannot do it. Not really. So my first question would be, is this something you think about a lot Or is it, do you just tell somebody, well, I roughly want to go in this direction this week. So I would be really curious how your ideas around this. Thank you. First of all, I'm so happy to be here with you. And I, I so appreciate your resonance with my content creation and, and my sharing. It, it really comes from such a, an authentic place for me and, and such a playful place too. I, I really feel very, very passionate about education around psychoactive experiences and, and how to engage with them in a good way, which is not obvious. And, and I'm also, while, while efforting on purpose to stay sassy, I'm not cavalier. <clears throat> like, I, I, I'm not cavalier about psychedelic work. And You know, I, I will say too that my own experiences with psychoactive medicines have invited me into a, a really cozy, <clears throat> happy meditation practice that I share. And I, and I sometimes feel funny about recording myself. It's like, why am I doing that? And simultaneously, I, I, I have heard so many people just appreciating the the consistency, the sharing of of let's sit and still for a bit. And, and, and perhaps that's evocative and inspiring for somebody else to, to, to try the same. Yeah. And if, what, what I really like about it is that, I mean, as we know, like, especially Instagram is full of protocols, what to do to reduce your, I don't know, glucose intake <laughs> before you even, I don't know, get up. And I mean, which I like to read, of course, but It's some, at some point it has something like a, like you would, we would be robots to, to just, um, become human. And at one point it feels like that, but in your case, it doesn't have that at all. And it's really more like, ah, this is such a fascinating existence <laughs> that Lauren tells us. I want to have it too. It's really interesting. I really always watch it. So, um. But yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we address this um, because I was curious how you put this together. But I like the word playful in this context. And, and for me, my main teacher within the realms of psychedelics is ayahuasca. And, and ayahuasca has very specifically instructed me, and, and, and I have dialogue with this medicine, to, to be research-backed, to be intelligent, to be anchored in, in science to the extent that we can and it makes sense. And also like, don't forget fun. She said, don't you dare leave levity out of the lesson plan. And, and, and I think that fun is often underrated and undervalued and people stop having it and don't know how to have it because it's, it's actually not obvious. And, and in, in my creations, I, I have fun. I am, am a, 
a very humble student in this planetary classroom and just in awe of it all and efforting to kind of give people bite-sized snacks on social media that might be supportive for them both in their emotional experience and in their experience as they uh, engage with, with psychoactive substances. So it's fun for me. That's, that's it. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> because like you say, I think it's something that is also very important in this whole communication of the topic, because it is often a very heavy topic. Why we talk about psychedelics with this huge mental health crisis, suicide. And I mean, which is of course a pressing topic, but I find it also great to have like a little bit of a different perspective once in a while. But um, so when you say ayahuasca is your main teacher so far, was this also the first experience you had with ayahuasca? No, I, I started my journey definitely not with ayahuasca. And I found my way through the wings of many other things. And uh, I, I, it's not where I began. And, you know, it's, it's useful to name too, Anne, that I, I'm very much a girl from the dare era, from the just say no era, from the, the drugs are, are bad and for derelicts era. And I, and I was a painfully good kid, like a painfully good, completely obedient, compliant, like no rule pushing, bending. Like I, I was efforting to do uh, what I thought I was supposed to do. And so it wasn't until much later that that I started to explore my consciousness in in a, a supported way with with psychoactives, and um, and I'm grateful because I, I I have only been in reverence and and in intentionality. Uh, I'm I'm open to engaging with these things for recreation, but that's also going to be skillful and intelligent and designed and on purpose and 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 it's just not obvious. So for me, it was definitely a path towards the grandmother medicine. And, and when the, I feel in many ways, she was calling me my, you know, through this whole existence and, and she, she lives with me well, well after ceremony. Like I'm, I'm kind of continuing to kind of integrate and be in dialogue with that divine spirit in my life. Before we come to your, to your practice and your, your ketamine practice also, like, would you say like, I mean, I feel like a lot of people in this space, including myself, got into psychedelics because there was something personal going on. And then eventually it take, took over <laughs> the life. So was this also the case, if you want to talk about it in, in your case? And, and if you want to talk about it, would you talk about it? Sure. Yes. And often when people ask me how I came to this path, the, the short answer is my own suffering. Right. And I think that people who are efforting to be therapists and doctors are, are in many ways in self-inquiry and, and efforting to, to heal and hold themselves in their own human wounding, which we all carry. And my, my journey, I mean, I've never met a client, myself included, that, that didn't have mommy daddy issues on some level. And of course, the intergenerational imprinting the Russian dolls of what it is to be human, right? Like, my mom and dad had their stuff and it impacted me and it was hard for me. And, and, and I struggled and, you know, my, my mother was very much a complex PTSD case. And, and so that very profoundly impacted attachment, you know, relations for me and uh, embodiment for me. And, and, you know, my dad and my mother were like a perfect match of mess and like they did what they did and it was beautiful and painful and, and, 
you know, my sister who my, my father uh, adopted and raised as, as his own, um, you know, she, she died when I was 20. So I I've done death. You know, my mother died eight years ago. My sister died when I was 20 and I was hurting and, and my, my pain looked at first like anorexia. I mean, that was the kind of the first problem point. Uh, and that really presented when I was in my late teens and early twenties before I was able to, you know, kind of climb my way back into health. My first tool really was yoga. I'd say it's still my first tool. And, and when you break down yoga, it's, it's, a, it's a practice of connection, of union, of coming together. It's integration. And, and it's, it's a body-based experience. Life is a body-based experience. And so to be embodied, which is the name of my practice and my work, uh, was my beginning. And in many ways, yoga was my first psychedelic experience. And from, from that place, I then started you know, going to therapy. And I had some really powerful clinicians who supported me. And, and I went, you know, to uh, treat my, my eating disorder to 12 step groups. And I am in deep reverence of the, the community and, and the care that is so abundantly available in, in those rooms and in those communities. Of course, they're flawed. And, 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 you know, Bill Wilson, we know he, he experienced LSD treatment and, and the hyper rigidity doesn't work for people who are in recovery. But I then ultimately landed in psychedelics, right? And, this, and, and when I opened that first door, which my brother invited me to, I sort of just went flying through the gates and knew that I had found home on some level in the universe and in my body and, and in all that is. And as, as I continued to progress, I, I came to understand how I could weave the disparate elements of my experience and, and my education into something that felt more whole uh, because I had become a therapist too. And then I learned and I, and I went to, you know, train with, with maps, with uh, center, with different shamanic trainings. And if you could even call them that, but, but I have uh, really been my own case study and, and own my own project, uh, always learning, but definitely fueled by my own journey of transformation and transmutation and very clear that it is absolutely possible for all of us. And then like when, when you, when you opened the practice, so it was, was it already before you had looked into psychedelics, you were already a therapist or was this, you are okay. Mm -hmm. And then you basically transformed your, your, without psychedelics practice into a pre-psychedelic practice into a psychedelic practice. I did. And, and in fact, it, it merits mentioned that I, I was really a, a yoga teacher too. And okay. once I had become a, a clinician, a therapist, I was still more compelled by teaching yoga than by just traditional talk therapy in the ways in which I had learned it. Now, I think that I have since learned a lot more exciting impact interventions. But ultimately, I, I, I still hold that life is a body-based experience, not a cognitive exercise. And, and so much traditional psychotherapy is like thinking, thinking, analyzing, analyzing, and can even reify like personality structures that are problematic and, 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 and not be really helpful. And, and I found that yoga was really helpful, that people could experience a, a system regulation, that they could breathe deeper, that they could cry easier, that they could, you know, access more 
just by moving their body on a mat than they could like in, in, in a therapy session in the way in which I knew how to do it then. Again, I've learned a lot more impactful psychotherapeutic tools since that time, but I'm still body-based. I'm still in that space. And then of course, partnering with, with, with psychoactive medicine, it's just a, a wonderful, um, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful life. It's, it's, there's so much that's possible. Yeah, it is. But I have one question when you say this with the psychotherapy, because I feel like, and again, I had that experience by myself, but I hear this from a lot of people that they've been into talk therapy sometimes, I don't know, 15, 20 years on and off another therapist, like, like a bad dating life, basically <laughs> just like a lot of on and off relationships <laughs> and, um, so, and, and, um, a lot of times you have this, have these stories where people in talk therapy and what we know today is therapy have actually experienced or gotten information in the, in the therapeutic context that was then the opposite of the insight that they had in their first psychedelic experience. So it's, it's almost, I mean, some people, because some people say, well, it's not so bad to do therapy before, because then you have some kind of a preschool situation for your, maybe for your psychedelic experience. But I often find that it's such a, it's such a different universe that these two things are moving in that a normal therapy is not necessarily a good preparation, even sometimes for for a psychedelic therapy. So how, how are your experiences around this? It really depends on the orientation of the provider and how skillful the provider is. And, you know, I, I really believe that life is psychedelic. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm not cavalier about people's engagement with these very explosive tools. These, these are powerful tools and partners and allies that can cause harm and that can be very disruptive in ways that are, are, are scary uh, and dysregulating. And so for me, you know, fundamentally what I believe heals is relationship. I believe we, we, we hurt and heal in relationship. And so I, I believe as a provider of psychedelic assisted therapy in a context, right, we're operating in a cultural context that is not shamanic. We are operating in a cultural context that is deeply, but painfully disintegrated. And so I believe that the role of the therapist in this kind of work is in some ways preparation for the for experience. Uh, and again, if I believe and I do that life is psychedelic, it's preparation for the experience so that like whatever happens, whether you're on ketamine in a session or you're sitting in the jungle with ayahuasca or you're in a breakup or your mother's dying or your business is falling apart, like I can breathe through this. Like I know how to do this, but that begins before the thing begins. So I, I will acknowledge that a lot of traditional psychotherapy is, is, is actually not very relational there's an ask that the, the provider erase themselves from the equation, right? Now, any sort of self-disclosure needs to be super selective and like purposeful. But for me, everybody I work with and have ever worked with has some part of Lauren and, and has 
some like sense of who I am so that there, there is actually a, a real reciprocity that's happening and, and their vulnerability can, can, can go deeper. Uh, their healing can go deeper. So I, I think it's complicated and in many ways. And also I think it's completely bananas that the job of a therapist exists at all. Like why do human beings in our culture have such a hard time feeling and, and expressing themselves in, in an effective way, right? Like I want to take myself out of a job as fast as I can. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's true. I mean, it's interesting. I just, uh, there was this one article a couple of days ago describing um, how Jean-Paul Sartre took actually masculine. <laughs> I don't know. It was just like random information, but it was so interesting to me because then he took it. His dose was too high. Like, so he, but he wrote a book afterwards, um, around his, uh, based on his experience is his emotional experience with masculine, but which we didn't know at the time. But what I find so interesting about it is that his whole concept of basically a non spiritual life and, and a life without kind of any kind of religion and um, just based on a one-on-one -on -one relationship um, with people, but there would be no spirituality whatsoever. But then he took masculinity. <laughs> and it's so interesting to me, this, especially this person, because in Europe, it's one of the big names in philosophy and he describes, you know, existentialism and so many people still kind of referring to this way of thinking that there would be nothing above us and nobody would watching us. But then the truth comes out and even these people are looking at <laughs> substances. So, and this is something to me that is just emerged. So, so interesting to me that this is emerging more and more, that this is actually a lie that everybody is looking for a, a spiritual moment. So, um, and, um, but coming back to, to your ketamine practice. So when was, I, I'd love to just jump in there. Oh, please. Yeah. Sure. 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 So important. Yeah. And, you know, on an acid trip with my dad, I, oh. I, I had the, the sense of how nuts the therapy job is truly like, I, I, it breaks my heart. Like I'm busy. Therapists are busy. It's, it's, it's heart wrenching that people don't know how to do what we are actually like know exactly how to do, you know, see a baby, they feel very quickly, very swiftly. They can move through, through the tides inside. And, and so, so much of the, of this journey of, of healing is about unlearning and, and returning to our, our mother tongue and our, and our motherland, mother tongue being emotional, motherland being your own body. Right. And, and for me on that acid trip, I was like, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing, which I'm so grateful to be doing and humbled to be doing, then I would just be wanting to talk about God. And as a little girl, I had so much existential distress and like the universe is so big and I don't matter. And, oh, and you know, really? my older brother is afraid of E.T. and the boogeyman. And I'm like, yeah. well, after you die and like totally like just didn't have any sort of concept of, of, of the divine or spirituality that that made sense to me. I didn't believe, I mean, now like spirituality, a begins with anything bigger than a person, right? So it doesn't need to be God. And, and there's obviously we live in somewhat of a post-religious world and mm -hmm. yeah, there's, sure. there's a desire to kind of abandon or kind of throw out the re religion, which I'm not so 
keen to do, right? I, I, as a Jewish woman, like I want to be in the reclamation of my practice. I, w- I want to like be in, in, in the right relations, authentic relations with the rituals that have held my people together for thousands of years, right? And, and to me, Judaism is super witchy. It's like a gazillion thank yous. And there's, there's, there, it's following the land and the moon and, 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 and pfft, I'm into it. Right. So I, I think that the concept of whiteness in our culture is responsible for the, the erasure of indigeneity. We all come from peoples that like knew how to tell time by the sun and, and, and just knew the land and, and were connected to the plants. And, and I, while being forward facing, I'm also eager to, to move with the wisdom of, of the people who came before me. And, you know, I mentioned intergenerational trauma before there's also the intergenerational wisdom and resilience and like, wow, that I, I want to honor. But when you say what's the, what's the, when you say that it's, it's a witchy thing, which I find interesting, which is very attractive to me yeah. because Catholicism is not witchy at all because they all got burned. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. I mean, any, any, um, my, my dad used to have this old book that he bought where there, there were kind of drawings, how witches were actually killed. But so if you, how, if you go, can you say what, what is the witchy, the witchiness? I mean, just in search of a better word. I think it's super interesting. Is, is hypercharged, of course. And, no, no, and I know, to, but it's a great, it's a great picture though. I think it's, it is a great picture It is to a great me. Well, and there's something renegade about the cultural witch, right? There's something that is counterculture, right? And, and, and we need to be counterculture because our culture is, is very ill. To me, with, you know, and, and I mentioned ayahuasca earlier, when I'm in ceremony, I, it feels like I'm going into the mystical garden, like the pardes, and I'm going with like the wisdom of Rabbi Akiva who was taught, and this too is good, and this too is good, and this too is good. And it is said that when he went in, he went in with four others. One went crazy. One like became a nihilist. One died and he came and left with shalom, peace. Like So so kind of moving with that and, and, and having spent quite a lot of time in study of, of my, my roots and, and my religion, I, I know that there's just literally like prayers for pooping, prayers for flowers, prayers for water, prayers for bread. Like, and, and the prayer, my, my favorite prayer, my favorite, favorite prayer is, is thank you. Okay? And it's just thank you. And all of these little prayers are like consciously thanking all these little amazing elements of our experience, of, of our bodies, of, of what it is to be here. And, and, and there's something witchy about that to me. You know, there's something like there, there's this consciousness to it that, that's, that's witchy and renegade. I, I really liked that concept. I mean, and I kind of felt always very attracted to Judaism and I'm still don't know what is really behind this. I just have a lot of experiences <laughs> in my trips that I'm like, I'm always called by the Jewish community. And of course, since I'm also half German, like I also have many kind of Holocaust related engagements or like pictures and, and, um, but it's still, it's still something I had a very long conversation with Zach Kamenetz about this and we didn't go <laughs> really anywhere. So I'm still in this process, but let's come back to you. Uh, first of all, before we come back to Kadamin, 
of course, it's wildly interesting to me if you do an, an acid trip with your dad. So <laughs> how does this, you say, dad, you want to come over? Let's, <laughs> should we have an LSD trip? And how, how did this um, come about? Happen? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and it may translate into your question around my ketamine practice. My, my father is a doctor, is a Western-trained physician. And, uh, and my dad went to therapy for decades, by the way. And, and, and he was unchanged. He, he was getting a lot of cognitive information and maybe language, but like unchanged. And he, like me, was very good and drugs were not on, on the, the good list. So he didn't participate in any of these things. And as soon as I had my first experience with a psychoactive plant, I, I told him, and, and he said with his cute Bronx accent, it's like honey to me. He's like, you're fucking doing drugs. Like you went to <laughs> Columbia, like what the fuck is it? Literally with a lot of fuck. And he's like, you're a straight A student. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? I'm scared. Like, what do you, what? what? And, I, and I said like, okay, I understand you're scared. And, and, and like, just listen to me. And I kept sharing with him. And then he said, I understand this clinical applications, but I don't need that. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this is a multi-year process before my father finally was willing to have an experience with uh, psychedelics. And, and my dad was such a natural traveler and it was, it was his first experience was 75 years old. Uh, my dad is such a uh, living proof that there it's never too late for change. And an old dog can learn new tricks that the dog wants to learn. I, I brought my, my father to my, my then mentor, Dr. Phil Wolfson in the Bay area. And my dad and I journeyed together on uh, intermuscular ketamine. And I having journeyed many times before had this very meaningful metacognition of like, Oh my God, my dad is tripping next to me. And, and he had this sort of a very like quintessential trip with experience of nothingness, like deep love and peace and all of it. And then subsequently has engaged in many other medicine experiences and including LSD. And he in fact was quite curious about an acid experience and was asking for me to, to, to sit with him and, and to be with him uh, on, journey like that. And I, in my busyness said, dad, like I'm busy, like I'll get to it. And during an ayahuasca trip, I, I, I was kind of working through some of my judgment towards my father for his, his cheapness in the world. And, you know, he's struggled to kind of feel comfortable spending money. And so I was judging him and, and then wept for my own cheapness with him, my energetic cheapness, my emotional cheapness, my cheapness of time with my father. And I got very clear that I was going to create a really beautiful acid trip for him for his birthday. <laughs> and so for his 78th birthday, I created this phenomenal LSD trip. Uh, and I, you know, I rented this beautiful space in Malibu and we had a Shabbat dinner and like had friends and I ate beautiful gifts and, and, and he was king of the castle. And that Shabbat Saturday, we, you know, read poetry, set intentions and off we went. And it was really, really beautiful. Um, I'm, I'm a big advocate for tripping in families together. And of, of course, like I said, nobody doesn't have mommy, daddy issues. And the space for transmutation and healing within those intimate primary systems translates to changing the way in which we relate to all other beings, including ourselves, right? when we can really course correct those, those initial um, 
attachment relationship. So I, I, I am very grateful to uh, have had many trips with my father, including that very fun 78th birthday LSD trip. Fantastic. So, I mean, and, and this is something, I mean, I, we just recently had a, a dad getting in touch because he was worried about his 20 year old daughter and he, he actually initiated then uh, ask us where could, could I go in the Netherlands to do this with my daughter? And it, I mean, like a super like straight business guy. So not coming from any kind of sp like spiritual background. So, and, um, I also think this is going to be, this has a big future. So what do you recommend if somebody wants to, let's say, propose this to, it's rather the other way around, that children would propose it to their parents. But I mean, it, it starts to happen now. And people who have a good experience, for example, with truffles, come back to us saying like, yeah, now I feel like I want to do this Yeah, with my one of my parents. So how do you recommend telling your parents about it? <laughs> what your plans are for the next birthday. And, and, and it is going back and forth too. I, I actually yeah. am present to a, a beautiful couple who are, are, you know, deep in their medicine work and their 18 year old son wants to journey with them. And so they're for his birthday, setting up a journey with parents and the, the son. So I, I think that part of this whole process requires really proper education. Like what are we talking about? And and how to how do we rehabilitate like clean clear the, the concept of of psychoactive substances of drugs at large of what we're, what what they are and what they aren't uh, and they're all the things right they're all the things they're not they're, it's not one thing but I think that you know being courageous enough to have the conversation and and I do think it's it's useful and and, and hope that my social media can can be supportive. <laughs> In, in equipping people with the language around like what what are we doing here and when we're partnering with these things for uh, connection for uh, deeper levels of, of healing of, of discovery uncovery recovery uh, and and for celebration right that, that's a good cause and uh, and, and it, it's it, the problem of the conversation is embedded in the problem of the, of this larger system within which we're still operating where there's problems legally. Right. So it would be really case to case, but you know, Hey mom or dad, like I want to share something with you. Uh, I'm a little scared to bring it up. And you know, have you been watching anything around psychedelics? In the news, <laughs> right. Have you, have you heard of Michael's book? Have you seen the things on Netflix? Like, I've had my own experiences. I'd like to tell you about them. Mm. And if you're open to it, right? And, and to be honest, like I, I'm, I'm curious if you have any interest in having an experience of your own. When would you be willing to have an experience with me? You know, and these, these kinds of things. And also normalizing fear. Um, really, I mean, and, and fear is reverence. Like the, it's, if, if there's no fear around some the journey, like I'm a little nervous. Yeah, no, it's always going to be there. Okay. Right. So it's okay. I get that you're scared. Um, and, and let's talk about that too. Yeah. It's funny. because I, I, I gave my mother the German version of Michael Pollan, which she read and now she's like, Oh, I knew some catamen today in a, in a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Right. <laughs> Just imagine. I mean, like, like you say, like, I mean, I also, I'm also from this generation where it's like, there's this 
German movie called Christiane F. And it's only about this famous heroin addict girl from Berlin. And this is the only reference, the main reference, let's say, in, in Germany or maybe in Europe, like train spotting in England, you know, all these kind of super hardcore drug movies that everybody is kind of referring to as a, as a drug narrative. Like Christiane F. is from the 80s. So this is the, um, like the worst case scenario that could ever happen. So, and this is the only narrative around it. Which so. is why I'm so ex grateful for new, more narratives coming online. Like those are still real stories, right? But, but sure, yeah. only like, if you want, if you want to create some drama, like just throw in some drugs. If you want to, if you want to make a mess in, in a, in a, plot line, like bring some drugs on. And, and been so few, uh, stories told visually on, on film or television more and more and more now, but that are showing how potent they are for healing, for spirituality, for, um, alignment, for right relationships, for widening one's perspective, for forgiveness, for love, for all of it. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? And but I mean, just just um, coming back to your to your relationship with Ketterman, like, what is fascinating to you about Ketterman? What's fascinating for me about Ketterman? Oh, I mean, ketamine is a beautiful drug for many reasons, clinically, and and it's. Uh, very dose dependent, right? There's really, really profound work that can happen in low dose ketamine experiences where a person is, is still lucid, is still conversational, but significantly disarmored and, and with much wider access to exile parts and, and can offer a space for much like deeper healing work in, in a psychotherapy session. Uh, I think that in the psychedelic dosing with ketamine, it's it's its own kind of beast and it's ego dissolving and and that level of interruption in our patterning at minimum is just a lovely respite, like nice to. Like we all need a timeout sometimes. And to, and a to. Oh. <laughs> I love that time. Yeah. And, and then it allows a person to come back to their their story, their experience. Uh, softened, right? And, and in that way, it can translate to more joy and embodied experience, just having that, that distance a little bit and coming back. Uh, I also think ketamine is beautiful for how fast it works. It's like, it's, it's a quick medicine. And so in contrast to something like psilocybin or MDMA, where you're going to need to plan for six to eight hours, right? Like, you can you can have an experience that's profound and and, and generative uh, therapeutically, and, um, and and continue right. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting that they replace one another, right? I, I love them all, but as a clinician and as a provider, I, I think that that's uh, helpful for for scale and getting more people treatment when it's appropriate to receive that kind of treatment. So do you? Do you have a variation of um, applications? Like, is it just intramuscular or also IV? I mean, is it? Do you do you kind of figure this out depending on on the patient? What's a good idea to do? I, I, I definitely meet the individual client and, and you know develop their own treatment plan. I, I personally work with intramuscular injections and the an oral medicine, so the lozenges. 
the IV is kind of requires a whole setup that I don't think is necessary uh, and, and generally happens in, in an environment that is often more sterile and medicalized in a, in a way that I'd, I'd prefer a more domestic cozy space. Uh, I, I, I'm not a physician, so I'm not injecting. Uh, as I mentioned, my, my father is uh, works with me. <laughs> And oh. I, I work with a number of physicians, but my, my dad is, is and has been for the last several years, my primary prescriber. And um, so that's also interesting, right? Where as a, being held in the arms of family as a person heals uh, and, you know, doing my own active healing with my dad on and on and on until like there's more and more integration, like where there's like, ah, exhale. But in my practice with ketamine, I, I, work with eye intermuscular injections and, and lozenges. So, and then, I mean, because I just did in, in COVID when I couldn't go to the Netherlands, I did this IV version and it was very high. Um, so, but still there were sessions where, um, I mean, I had really incredible connecting the dots moments and, but I always thought it was such an incredible weird feeling to be completely like, I think I just saw my feet and in between, I didn't feel it. it was like, you know, like these kind of magicians and shows when they kind of cut their woman in half and it's like in between there's nothing. So this is really how I felt, but it was such an unusual feeling. Um, like even weirder in a way, if you want to use that word, than in psilocybin or MDMA. I mean, I haven't done ayahuasca, but so what do you think is the, the come biggest... Come to Costa Rica with me, Anne. I'm, I'm I said, come to Costa Rica. Oh, to, to Alex? To Alex Antoine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to. With you, I would do it. Yeah. With you, I would do it. Yeah, I will well, do it you. with you. I'd love to have you there. <laughs> okay. The, now that I know you're involved, um, I feel I'm, I'm not so scared anymore. But I mean... So what do you think is the biggest advantage of this disassociation? It's because it's not, it's a, it's a very different feeling than on, I mean, on truffles, you cause so much in your body and it's like, you are your body, but in ketamine, you're not your body at all. So, and what, what is the advantage of this position that you're in? physically at this moment. Again, I think that there, there's some real merit to the, to the timeout and we, all of these medicines, they're always going to be uniquely experienced, right? They're totally unpredictable. And, and some people experience it as, of course, like not the majority, but some people get very in their bodies. Uh, some people have, you know, access to repressed memory. It's common for people to have mystical experiences, uh, deep experiences of love. And, and it's, it's just sort of like, you can't determine what will come. Um, and agreed, it's not mushroom or uh, MDMA body, body. You're kind of deeper out in, in space when you have a higher dose of ketamine. And, and, and to be honest, like I, I, um, I like being in my body. I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I want, I want to be there. Uh, I, I, I think um, it really, we, we have the, the right to have preferences around our substances and, um, some people will, will, will choose it. I think, I think it's also about the, the condition that's being treated and, and what's, what's needed, but, um, the dissociative piece of it, um, 
just, I think, really allows spaciousness to widen your perspective. And then it's on the return in relationship that the unpacking and the meaning making happens, right? So, you know, if, if, if we were working together and I was with you when you had that kind of split body experience, I, I would be very curious about like unpacking that with you. Like, what did that mean for you? And, and, and how do we do therapy around, around that? How do we kind of really allow the experience to be fertile with, with meaning? I mean, it was, I mean, looking back at it now, I mean, it's like, I think it was in 2020, I think at the end of that year. So, I mean, I had just learned in this year about a trauma that was affecting my body very much, like my female body also. And so um, it was actually looking back at it now, it was almost like a, a really important step to how, how would it be if you wouldn't have a body? You know what I mean? It's kind of this, it, I'm not going to say it was a relief, but it was a, a very interesting perspective of how would it be if this whole thing, da, 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 what's happening in this body is not there? What, what, how would you feel then? So, and I never thought about it that way. I think ketamine is also like to exactly what you're saying, so great for end of life care because a person can have such deep levels of disconnection from form and, and, and be really quite okay. Maybe even relieved, maybe happy, maybe like at ease without. And, and it allows for a person, I think, to approach death and dying with a very different uh, perspective, you know, because I think that death and dying is something that uh, we need to do better. Yeah. Sure. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, we're all going to do the, the death thing. Nobody gets out of this thing alive. <laughs> so let's talk about it. Let's, and let's like be prepared for it. And Let's honor it. And I, I, I really, I mean, my dad, I remember in his first journey, had this real experience of nothingness with ketamine and, ha and having completely left his body. And, you know, as my father in his latter 70s, at, in partnership with psychedelics, has cultivated spirituality for the first time. But, you know, he, him kind of talking to him about death and fear of letting go. And I was like, well, remember that experience you had with ketamine and how you totally didn't have access to your body. And it was, what was that like for you? And he said, well, it felt really kind of nice. I'm like, hmm. well, if, if death is just that. <laughs> that's so funny. Then I can do it. It's right. Like, and that's okay. Oh my God. That's okay. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Like the nothing experience. There's this sort of like, and, and there, I think there's, again, some sort of metacognition, uh, if, if you're dosed appropriately, right, where you, you kind of have a sense of nothingness, uh, but the sense of it, right, you're, you can maybe remember that. Yeah, also you have like a, like a death experience, Yeah. Where in, mostly right in the beginning when it with truffles, mostly it does when, when it, it kicks in and it's like, oh, this is how this could be and... Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, just as a mock-up. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, having buried both my sister and my mom, I, I have been intimate witness to you know protracted death processes, and those have been very informative for me and very developmental for me. And you know, also the psychedelics experiencing have have supported me in, in my own contemplation of finitude and my own mortality, and like it's ultimately only ever an invitation to life. Like this is not a dress rehearsal, baby. Let's go. Like 
let's let's do this thing and let's lick the plate of life right let's like by the time it's time if we get a long ride like that we should say i did a great job i was i, I took the right risks i was brave like you know what people talk about fear a lot and we're not acculturated to be with fear in a good way fear is part of the equation like get comfortable so the goal isn't to be fearless, it's brave. And, and to live a life outside of the proverbial fishbowl as much as we can and simultaneously have our practices. Like, I'm going to sit down every morning and meditate and pray. And then I want to try and go do some new things that I haven't done before. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I think so. Um, but um, it's, so in, in our email with exchange, we, you are back to me that you would be actually, which I found interesting, like you would work around relationships and systems, like on a systemic level, but you work on a systemic level with around the topic of relationships. I'm just kind of putting it together like this. So, and, um, but I feel that my, my question would be, it must be that more and more people come to you also to your practice because we have, I feel like nobody has a real sense of relationships anymore or it's deeply disturbed um, at the same. And, and also in, in, in terms of how does a positive system actually work, which could be a family, a company, a country. So it doesn't have to be like only a romantic or friends relationship. And I mean, of course we know that COVID had, contributed very much to the situation, but I feel even before it was in most people's lives, they, if, the, if you would have asked them, what is a good relationship? Um, they would have probably not be able to really answer that question. And now on Instagram, our favorite topic here, you have all of these, um, you know, millions of posts a day, what like, what it means if somebody like does this, this is toxic, this is not toxic. Um, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like millions of, of experts out there. So, but, but coming back to my question, so do people actually come to you with that kind of irritation, how intimacy actually works and how a relationship works? I don't know that they would articulate it that way, but you know, as I mentioned earlier, we, we hurt and heal in relationship. And I am aware that a lot of therapy, a lot of dyadic one-on-one -on -one therapy is, is replicating cultural problems of isolation and separation. And so much of this like beautiful, intimate, transformational work is siloed and separated and, and kept apart from the rest of the person's life. I'm also aware that, that when we really do big healing work, it's disruptive. It is going to shatter the homeostasis that the individual is, is operating in. And that's going to include other people, right? So, you know, in, in couples where oftentimes a person goes to therapy or and starts engaging maybe with some psychedelic assisted work and they're really growing and, and maybe they're growing at a pace that's, that's not in, in line with their partner. And, 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 and maybe this is creating a, a gap and, and an iatrogenic harm. Like there's, there's harm to the treatment. So I want as best I can to, support the evolution of relationships along healing lines versus the dissolution, which means to the extent that I can, I want to involve the, the close 
people in the system to support the, the, the growth of, of the system, not just the person, right? Not just me, 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 me. What is our we? And, <clears throat> and, and I, 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 I'm just aware that the more I do this work, the more clear I am that it's also advocacy and activism, right? I think Krishnamurti said it's, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Uh, you know, when Gandhi was asked, what do you think of Western civilization? He responded, you know, I think it would be a good idea. So, so people are appropriately unwell. And they're unwell because they're breathing the air. Right. And, and so I want to work within like the, the matrix that each one of us is embedded in. And that that's intimate. That's that's family. That's partnership. Uh, in, in the hope and prayer that that will widen, right? If someone's, you know, an employer, if, as you mentioned, company, right? That like it starts to kind of widen, that people have the tools to, to communicate effectively when they're hurt, when they're mad, when they're sad, when they're scared uh, versus acting out, right? And, and so really supporting individuals in uh, developing secure attachments uh, with me, too, because a lot of unhealthy attachment relationships get cultivated in the therapeutic process. Yeah, yeah, sure. Which I don't want. Like, I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. Let's, we're not doing that. Um, and then support the individual within their constellation of relationships to be moving in, in, a, in a good direction, right? That, that's the work. And I mean, like you, you said it earlier when at the beginning of your, of your answer, which I totally agree that once you start a real healing process, I mean, you could also say everything is blowing up for yes. a while to make yes. it short <laughs> yes. and, um, you might lose people pretty f rapidly, like fast, like half of your friends or maybe more family, partner, family, um, job, whatever, like. But I mean, I think it always starts with the, my feeling is it often starts with the old friend circle or like mostly what people have been friends with for like 10, 20 years because it was already established. So, and, um, and I totally agree that this is when it really starts and not really before mostly in most cases, including myself. So, um, but how do you guide somebody in therapy, which I find on actually even more and more important what happens after this mega experience you had in a trip. I mean, you can also say it's integration, but sometimes it's more than integration. It's just really like kind of re re um, redefining who you are actually with the, with the support of, uh, and then it has to be a psychedelic therapist. It can't be another therapist anymore. So how, what is your take on guiding people through this really, really drastic transformation? Hmm. Love is the biggest medicine there is, right? And, and my wish is to support the authentic expression of individuals and, and to, in, in a way that that's causes you know, no harm, but, but it is, people are expressed. And, and so really, you know, this is also back to preparation, Uh, if if you if a person is on some level like equipped they they've got a tool box and a backpack snacks and like they know how to navigate on some level like you can, you can't can't anticipate what's going to come ever including in a trip but you know giving a person some some practical skills and relationships so that they can 
then move forward and understand like what wants to be worked with, what wants to be uh, shifted, what what needs to be shifted. And it's an it's an action. Like it's it's life is an action sport, not a cognitive exercise. So you know, there's also the invitation that people like don't make any drastic decisions. You know, 72 hours after uh, a, a psychedelic experience, like you know, sit with it before you quit your job or. Um, leave your relationship or whatever, but ultimately like there's going to be things that, that need to happen. And, and those things that need to happen are not done by therapy or psychedelics. Mm, interesting. They're done by human beings being human beings, which is the whole point, right? Like for me, these experiences as even with ketamine, like they can be so interstellar and so intergalactic and fantastic. And, and the goal is planet earth, right? The goal yeah. is like here. Yeah. Like wonder here. So you, you basically help to translate it basically a little bit after. Like that's yes. a soft word for, for like. For... And, and in partnership with, right? Like I, I, I'm going to work with the person and, and with their expertise as an individual, right? Like I, I, I don't know. You know, even the language of a psychedelic guide is sort of problematic. Like we're not guiding them anywhere. Like we're ground control and the therapist is asking skillful questions and supporting them in accessing their own inner healing intelligence. And, you know, really in, in a, holding a loving space for, for the person to travel wherever, however far they need to go. But, you know, as a clinician working with these, these types of spaces and experiences, ultimately in partnership with the client, I'm going to identify with that they're going to identify in, in conversation relationship with me what's meaningful what is what is the translation you know, to use your word of the experience in your life like how do we anchor into a new normal what what what, what are the actions that need to happen maybe it's just drinking more water maybe it's confronting somebody you know, peace requires mastery of conflict. We are so conflict avoidant. So many people in, in their work with me have like regained their voice, their sovereignty, their authority, their ability to like navigate challenge in, in a direct and kind way. And is, and is, do you think that um, the experience of trauma is making somebody conflict avoidant? It, it, I mean, it's, dumb question because of course it is, but, but in a way that is it because I felt like, I feel like often if people have experienced that, this is, this is, makes it even impossible, especially if two people, two traumatized people meeting each other, it's almost impossible to even address a conflict in a system or a relationship. Same goes for nations. Also, if two traumatized nations um, yeah, and, 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 uh, precisely. And, you know, when, when you mentioned uh, being German and, and, and Holocaust, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I'm whenever I'm in Israel and I go to the Yad Vashem yeah. Holocaust Memorial Museum there, like I, I spent time um, thinking about what it was like for the Germans. And when, when you mentioned that, like I had full body chills, like like how, how scary and hard and, and t terrible like even even if I, I'm a Jew, right? Like like the part of the like the level of dehumanization that's required to do that job, like and and the numbers of people who committed suicide, right? Even when we're looking at the great levels of success that's happening within the veteran community in psychedelics and how that's getting bilateral political support, like yay, but the moral injury, 
right? Yeah, yeah. That, that people have to live with. Uh, it, it's not lost on me, and 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 we're all kind of working through a lot of heavy traumatic content that is maybe not ours directly, but is imprinted. So how how do we how do we do that? Yeah, for ex I mean, for example, I just moved into a new apartment a month ago, and in that street, I mean, I just moved in the street, and pretty much every house has these, um, you know, these in front of the houses are these, these stones with the name of the people who got taken to a camp and even where the camp was. And now I'm kind of have this new, I mean, I lived in a house, one of the few houses that didn't have that history, but now I'm moving, now I live into a house where there are like six people and you can see the, you know, before you enter the, the main entrance, it's right in front of you every day. And it's very close to the, to the synagogue where I am, which I won't move away. I'm just never leaving the street for some reason. So, What's but it's like for you. And yeah, that's a really good question because I feel like, um, and the funny thing is since I kept coming back from California, I, I lived in two apartments and three actually, and they were all in the street. And then, I mean, I can tell you this because it's, um, it's a, psychedelic podcast. And I think in my first psilocybin experience, 2020, um, the sort of the trip began and I closed my eyes and I, and I saw six rabbis kind of from coming in from, from the left or behind me towards me. And they said to me, Oh, you know why you live in that street, right? So and I was like, Oh my God, how do you even know? I have this question why I live in this street. And then they said to me, well, because we lived here and we want to be with you. And it was, I mean, it was the first encounter with this topic in a way that, you know, like other than a cognitive, I mean, I, I was, I, I, my parents, I, we went to Yad Vashem too. So, and, and I kind of, it was the first kind of um, monument I've seen in, in, that, in that context. So, but here it's a very, It's, I mean, it was the Jewish area where I live. So it, before the Nazis, it was the area where all the stores, where all the Jewish people basically lived next to Charlottenburg, which is in West Berlin. So, and um, it's just, I feel I cannot live in another place in Berlin. This is the place I want to live. So, and I just don't really have like a, I mean, I, I'm still haven't figured out like really, and like if there are any ancestors But I just had many, many experiences in the trips where um, basically it was always the, the message was always like, well, I said to, let's say, I give you an example. I mean, I don't, I feel I can talk about it. So I just, uh, because I don't have children, I always had struggles with this. And I saw myself in one trip, like, like cut open where not Nazi doctors were standing over me and saying like, oh, There's nothing here. Like she's not worth anything because she doesn't have children. What do we even want with her? And then I looked to the other way and I saw the Jewish community. And then there was this rabbi and said, I, I went to this community and then I said to them, well, they don't like me. They also don't like you. Do you think I can come to you? And then this rabbi said, like, we told you so many times. How long, how often do we have to tell you this? You belong to us. And this happens all the time, like pretty often. Mm -hmm. So, 
And it's kind of a, it's still a thing I, I cannot really like, you know, like putting the finger on it and just have to go into a bigger research. But it is very, very strong for me that, um, it's deeply in your psyche and your yeah, like spirit yeah. space. It's yeah, it really is beautiful. And so, um, yeah, but it's something that, um, I, it was always, I, even long before I lived here, I mean, it's even in school, I always got in almost into fights with people in school when they were like, oh, we can't listen to this Nazi thing anymore because it's just like we had it now in one, we had it now for a year, for a couple of years, but now I think that we don't want to listen to it anymore. And and then I would get in, into fights with in, in seventh grade, like, what do you, what do you mean? But it's so important. <laughs> like, and have you read Anne Frank and stuff like so they were like, oh, leave me alone. It, it was always this conflict I had with other children even. Mm, wow. So. Wow. That's, um, well, it's something to be in study of, right? Like, Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. It's a good study of you, apparently, right? Like, it yeah, I mean. To you. It came, I mean, it came to me very early. And also my parents wanted to move to to Israel when I was 12 to work in a kibbutz. And we, we almost did that. Wow. And I was very excited. I had no idea, but <laughs> I wanted to live there. I'd never been there. I wanted wow. to live there. So yeah, well, that's hearing all this. It's another story. Um, but, but, but before we, before we let you go here, um, into your beautiful sunshine, <laughs> That I have one more question. Um, so you also had a board for, for Journey Clinical, right? With Jonathan and, and Miriam. So, and I find this is a company to me that is a really, has created a really realistic structure around how psychedelic therapy can execute it, be executed right now, like not in 2025 or like in the next 20 years. So, um, and I would, I, my, my question would be, so what is your take on to build a structure for psychedelic treatments and practices that should start right now without waiting for drug development results and in, in the future? I'm always going to be an advocate for individuals having their own experience. And in this space, it, you know, we're not giving people diabetes medicine. So the more traveled a person is in their own psyche, the more comfortable they are uh, interfacing with challenging content themselves, the more equipped they're going to be to be with what presents for their client. Now, as uh, someone who's contracted to do healing work in this lifetime, uh, to be a servant of, of wholeness, uh, of the, the homecoming journey of the human heart and, and, and the people coming home to their bodies and beings in a good way, you know, I'm, I'm going to do everything that, that I know how to do. And I, I like to just remember uh, that the United States was, was built on civil disobedience. I'm grateful for civil disobedience, right? I'm like, thank you, Oscar Schindler. Thank you, Rosa Parks. Thank you, Gandhi. Thank you. And, you know, I, I am grateful that we have a legal medicine. And also there are medicines that are really, really more impactful for specific conditions and to the people who are breaking the law to do the right thing to save lives. Like I say, thank you. Um, I, I, I don't think at all that psychedelics are going to be any type of like grand solution for anything. You know, as we've discussed, they're, they're explosive. They can, 
uh, create more difficulty for people sometimes than even good. They can backslide. Like they're, they're not the answer. Like, you know, ultimately I'd like for people to need less drugs and to, to be more, you know, in, in life and, and without the need for alteration. Um, so I, I think that we, we need like kind of systems change. And uh, I, I'm very proud of Journey for creating a collaborative care model. Like we need collaboration. We need more connection. We need more community. Uh, that's what we need more than the psychedelics, right? There, there's such a, a seeming effort to just uh, want to replace pills. And, and, you know, that it just doesn't work. We, we know that already. And, you know, these pills are maybe less addictive, um, but, but they, they don't do the thing. Like we do the thing and we do the thing well together. So journey is this awesome, like space and place where clinicians are able to learn in a good way where, where there's, you know, an out, kind of distribution of roles and, you know, the medicine, medical providers are doing the medical thing. The therapists can do their therapy thing and we can partner in a good way with the medicine. But, um, I don't have any kind of grand sweeping things because also, and I believe that this work this business of healing is, isn't really that scalable, intimate, this is intimate and like, I'm, I'm wary of like someone that just wants to make it the same for everyone. Or like, it's even in the research protocols, they're research protocols because they need to be research protocols, not because that's what the best service is for the individual needing care. So I, I'm kind of like, let's just, be t- together in a good way and and let's tend to what's before us and and let the like little tiny winds reverberate out you know personal healing becomes collective liberation and and just keep going from from there i mean it's it's interesting what you say and i totally agree because i feel like a lot of people if they tell me about their experiences it's oftentimes that they forgot how a community feeling feels like. Um, even if they know a lot of people and have a big family or a great job, and but just the so that they can be in a community without judgment. So this is the feeling that people remember the longest or kind of that kind of really knocks them off their feet if they have that kind of moment. So, and, um, it's, that's why you're right that it has to be continued and reestablished in, in your real life that you're not a functioning, I don't know, functioning parent, functioning coworker, like, so. And, it, and it's, it's an ecological approach and, and there's a, a way yeah, of which there's an understanding of interconnectivity. And, you know, I even think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and at the top is self-realization. Well, I think there's a top to the top, which is self-transcendence. And when we really realize self in a good way, the only thing that makes sense is like, how do I serve? How do I support? Like, what do you need? Are you okay? What can I give you? You know, when when love runneth over, like the, the cup runneth over, like then then it's, we're in a good place. So um, I, I, I'm weary about all the business, right? And I think there's probably aspects of it that will be very supportive in the widening of the work in good ways. And simultaneously, like my my understanding of healing is that it's a, it's a intimate, it's relational, it's a one-on-one. Uh, it's a, And then the one-on-one that becomes communal, that becomes like the forest and the trees and 
understanding our place in it all. That's a great last word, I would say. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was super interesting. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.